Hi there. I had this thought a few months ago that I would uh, do a podcast of a poem and I would share a reading of the poem every now and then. So uh, to kick it off, we'll start with Sonnet 73 by William Shakespeare. And uh, I'll read the poem and then I'll read it line by line and we'll discuss what comes up. You know, usually when I read poetry, I'm reading it in conversation with someone else, perhaps with a study partner, perhaps with a class or a small group of students. So you'll forgive me if I speak to myself. Sonnet 73. That time of year thou mayst in me behold when yellow leaves or none or few do hang upon those boughs which shake against the cold, bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang. So the first quatrain, the first set of four lines here rhyme every other line. And there's a call here to a you, to an other, that there's a certain time of year that's perceived or seen within oneself by another. Sounds like there's a call to vulnerability. You know, you might see me at my frailest. You might see me and I might be broken. I might be breaking. You might see me and maybe you won't. And so I think there's a hope there in the first line that there's an invitation maybe that you might see me this way. You might see in me something. And if you do this invitation, then there's more to see. That time of year thou mayst in me behold some time of year, unspecified, but we'll see soon that it's fall or early winter of one's life. Perhaps you'll see in me now. I hope you see in me now. When yellow leaves or none or few do hang. You know, the confusion here carelessness of how many leaves are actually hanging. Are there no yellow leaves? Are there a few? Are there yellow leaves? There's a carelessness here to the narrator, to the speaking voice about what's been lost about what remains, but there's a hope that someone else out there perceives this condition, maybe a condition of carelessness, maybe a condition of lost hope, maybe a lost hope of regrowth, of growing back, of returning to one summer, 
Is it possible that this is the end and that there won't be a return? It's possible. So these yellow leaves are hanging upon those boughs which shake against the cold. Here are the branches that are both the subject reacting to the cold and also somehow resisting or persisting in the face of the cold. The boughs are always there, the leaves come and go, but the boughs are always there and there's something special about the boughs. They're what remains as a skeletal existence. But the leaves have a pleasure of departing before the winter descends. The boughs are the ones that have contest with the winter. The boughs are what remains. It's not pretty. What's left is not pretty, what has to do battle with the cold. And these boughs were bare rune choirs where late the sweet birds sang. They used to be branches. They used to be benches where the birds used to sing. And here again, this is all some sort of symbol or some sort of association of what one's inner life was. There was life, it was joyous. It was visited by more joy. Here the metaphor is actually one of an empty church. The choirs being the benches where the choir would sit. The choirs are bare, the choirs are ruined. Those two words run into each other, bare, ruined. And I read it the first time I paused because it's almost like you have to stop between the two words. You have to hold each word separate from the other. The choirs are bare. And because they're so bare, they're ruined. And you're left with absolutely nothing, you're ruined. Or at least that's what you hope someone else sees. And the sweet birds, the unspecified sweet birds, they used to sing there. It's the vague memory of some joy that's past, some youth that's past, some passion, some hope. Now there's the time of silence, the time of cold. And that's the first quatrain of the 73rd sonnet. Second quatrain begins, in me thou seest the twilight of such day, as after sunset fadeth in the west. And so here in these two lines, there's less of a may seest, as we saw in the first line, and there here there's a statement an obvious statement of a state in which the subject is seen. You see me, 
as in the twilight of the day, as after sunset fadeth in the west. You know, after the sunset proceeds, after the sun, the sun sets, there's a twilight, there's a brief burst of color, and then there's a descent again of more color. It's the second death, twilight. And it's taken away not by the sun, but it's taken away by night. In the sun's absence, in the darkness that there remains, night is the overpowering force. And so the, the next line of this sonnet, of the second quatrain, continues, which by and by black night doth take away. Time after time, surely night takes away. Night takes away the light of twilight, which is death's second self. It seals up all unrest. Night is considered death's second self, but as I said before, after the sun sets, the twilight remains, and then night takes away. That is a second death of the day, sealing everything up, finalizing, concretizing, repeating the death of the day. It's almost as if the voice, the narrator, the speaker of this poem is acknowledging both the death and its afterlife. There's a brief burst of color, brief burst of life, and then there's a second death, a death of a memory of the event, the death of the death of what was. It's almost like that saying, they say that a person dies a second time when no one utters his name again. And here it is, the second self, forgotten. No longer mourning the empty, the skeletal choirs of passion, but forgotten. The third quatrain begins, line nine. In me thou seest the glowing of such fire that on the ashes of his youth doth lie. So we've gone from the season to the day to the moment of a fire. And here actually, we have more life than what we've seen in the previous two quatrains. It's almost a turn, it's almost a volta, if you will. There's almost a persistence or an insistence here that I have a fire glowing. I'm not silent, I'm not cold, I'm not faded, I'm not dead, I have a fire glowing. And we sort of sense all along that after eight lines, this mourning, this act of mourning is actually an act of resistance to the truth. But in that act of resistance to the truth, there's a glowing of a fire. There's a persistence of a fire. 
that on the ashes of his youth doth lie. This fire is lying on the ashes of its youth. It's almost like remembering your innovative years, your creative years, remembering when you were truly alive and actually gaining life from those moments in the present. That somehow remembering your heydays gives you life, but it does so temporarily because you can only gather so much life from your ashes. Ultimately, your ashes extinguish that hope that you have from your ashes or that life that you've gained from your ashes. The ashes extinguish that too, the overwhelmment, because it's not a source of life, it's a source of death. So the poet continues as the deathbed whereon it must expire. This is the last two lines of the third quatrain, lines 11 and 12. As the deathbed whereon it must expire, the ashes of his youth are the deathbed. That ultimately you will die. And even if you gain life, pull life and pull inspiration from your youthful years, when you do that, you die in your deathbed. When you do that, you die in your deathbed of your youth. And the thing we thought that was so hopeful, the passion, the fire that was actually burning here, the first moment of life that we had in this poem, that thing is consumed with that which it was nourished by. Maybe one of the saddest lines of the entire poem. Yes, there was life in the winter of your life. Yes, there was life in the second death of your life. But that life was consumed with that which gave it life. It was absolutely destroyed by its youth, by its hope. And so for the first 12 lines, we have this voice, we have the speaker acknowledging his current state, hoping that someone else sees that state. So again, in the first four lines, you have the hope, the prayer, the acknowledgement of someone else perceiving this death of the winter, one's life, the second quatrain. There's a statement of fact that in fact, you're in the twilight of your life. That twilight is being killed by a second, second coming of death. And in the third quatrain, you see a fire that is deceptive. It's a fire of passion that's fueled by the youth that nourished, continues to nourish in old age, but that will extinguish 
the old age will kill the old age if the old age is nourished by this youth. And in fact, that's what's happening here. Somehow the poet is saying that the youthful years that have nourished one beyond the youthful years, those youthful years are now consuming, are now overwhelming, are now sentencing the elder. So what is the problem of this poem? On one hand, this poem assumes and hopes for a certain kind of companionship. And yet this poet is so lonely in his predicament, perhaps unlike some of other some of the other Shakespearean sonnets, this poet is experiencing a kind of existential loneliness. And this poet is remarking on that. It's almost like the, the partnership or the community that the other can offer is simply witnessing the dilemma, the internal dilemma. And for the first 12 lines of this poem, this poem is entirely about, is entirely about its subject, reflecting on its own interiority. And so let's read the last two lines and question whether or not that, whether or not that continues for the final, the final part of the poem. So the poem resolves the last two lines of a Shakespearean sonnet often offer a sort of resolution to a problem. Let's see. And maybe in reading this resolution, we'll understand what the problem was. So the poet shifts to the you here. And there's a lot about the you. We had a lot about the I in the first part in the first 12 lines. and. The last two lines are all about the you. This thou perceivest, which makes thy love more strong, to love that well which thou must leave ere long. So I think on the first reading, this is obviously the thou that was referenced in the first line, the you, who is beholding the I or the me in this poem. This you sees all these things, sees the empty choirs and sees the twilight of the day and sees the dying fire consumed with that which it was nourished by. You see all these things that are happening within myself and you love me even more. And perhaps why do you love me even more? The last line answers that question because you will love that well, which you will have to leave before long. Things that are dying we love more acutely. We love things as we mourn their passing. Now the question is, is this a statement that's supposed to reconcile or resolve the internal problem? Because here it seems in the last two lines, this couplet, this rhyming couplet that's supposed to resolve the poem, the resolution has everything to do with the thou and not with the I. But the I seems to be suffering. The I seems to be mourning its own loss in the opening of the poem. 
the thou at the very end of the poem is reassured that its love will be enhanced, but that's all. So how does this answer the problem of the opening of the poem? So I think typically the way my students have answered or resolved this poem over the years is that they've suggested, and I think they're right about this, they've suggested that the last two lines, the thou of the poem that's being addressed here is actually the same subject as the I or the me. And the, re the resolution, the reconciliation of the last two lines is that the poet is reassuring itself himself, herself, yourself, myself. It's reassuring itself that even with its own dying and death, love, even if it's finite, even if it's bound by the departure of something, love rises and is most acute through such a perception. And I guess what the poem is really asking us to consider is that there's a possibility, since we don't really live continuous, stable lives, there's a possibility that this time of year is happening all the time within ourselves, within others, and that there's always the capacity to love others or love oneself even more acutely or more strongly simply because a past self is passing. And so there are moments that we can love so acutely and that we know that we do love so acutely. I'm reminded of course of the high school years and the way in which one, when one is in high school, one feels like one might live forever in this state. One might always be in high school. And because of that, one might live forever. And I think at that time, those years are so beloved. They're so cherished. Not because there's a true awareness that they're passing, but because somehow there's a knowledge that they're passing. That These are the final years of one's childhood, let's say which might mean for a young adult, one's freedom, or what might mean for a parent, one's dependency, child's dependency on the parent and the way in which that's felt acutely with a certain amount of love. Well, that should be true at every point in our lives, that we love deeply the thing in front of us the moment in front of us, the person in front of us, ourselves in front of us, we love it deeply because it's passing, because it will have to be left before long, ere long, as Shakespeare says at the very end. This is a lesson in gratitude. This is a lesson in love. This is a lesson to acknowledge the things that we are constantly mourning 
internally. And that we're constantly fighting to not de- to not leave, to not depart, to be nourished by And like the few leaves that hang upon, even though they're ambivalent, or even though the speaker is ambivalent, the few leaves that hang upon the branches are the fading colors of the sunset after the sun has set in the twilight of the day, or the glowing of the fire. It's dying and consumed by its own ashes. Well, that's happening all the time. It's happening all the time. I think Shakespeare is telling us just to perceive it, behold it, see it, see it again and again see it every season, see it every day, see it every moment. And if you do that, well, you might love more deeply.